0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Deal with Danny Brown. Today's guest, this is a really special episode with Spencer Raskoff. He is the co-founder of Zillow. He's the co-founder of Picasso. He's the head of 75 and Sunny, his investment fund, his investment company that has his hands in several startups. He also was one of the founders of Hotwire. This is just one of the most accomplished entrepreneurs of our generation. Uh, we have a lot of friends in common, grew up here in L.A., and obviously Zillow was a huge, huge, uh, impactful company on the residential real estate world, but uh, would love to to uh, get detailed and deep and have several more of these conversations with Spencer, but this is a good place to start. School is in session. You can always find him at at Spencer Raskoff. You can find us at Danny Brown LA. Please subscribe to the deal with Danny Brown at Apple. Leave us a comment. Tell your friends. The more you do that, the more exposure we get. Anyway, enjoy this as much as I did. It's an incredible episode.
1: Welcome to the deal, Spencer. Good to see you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Yes, I know uh, we know a ton of people in common. You're an L.A. guy, so I won't get too, won't get people too bored with all our uh, L.A. crossover friends. But <laughs> um, you're well known to my audience for founding Zillow, which had one of the biggest, if not the biggest, impact on residential real estate in our lifetime. And we're going to dive into that, and we're going to dive into Picasso, your new company, which is fractional ownership at the high end and luxury business, which a lot of my audience is aware yeah. of. And if they're not aware of, they should be. But before that, let's just start from the beginning and kind of walk me through where you grew up, where you went to school, uh, and how you started your career.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I was born in New York. I lived in New York till I was 12. And then my parents dropped this bombshell on my brother and me and said they were going to move us to LA. And I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Well, you know, I can't leave New York. And I, I moved out here to LA. And by like, Three days later, I was hooked. You know, I was like, "Oh my God, this is amazing! I love it here." Um, So I went to high school here in Los Angeles. I went to Harvard Westlake. I know we're about the same, you know, the same era. um, Yeah, a
0: lot of friends in common.
1: um, And Harvard Westlake is in, you know, is in uh, Homeby Hills in Studio City. And then, um, uh, and then I left LA and was gone for gosh, twenty something years or so, and made my way. um, You know, I lived in in New York, and Boston, and. Uh, San Francisco and Seattle and did lots of things professionally and then came back just a couple years ago. So um, so that's how I you know, started here in LA and now I'm back.
0: All right. So let me rewind because you just fast forwarded through a lot of yeah. stuff that I know has happened. So I know you went to school in LA, then you went to university at Harvard, back East. Uh, what was your first career? What was your first job out of school?
1: Yeah, so my first job out of school was investment banking. I worked at Goldman Sachs in the mergers and acquisitions department, um, advising on M and A. And investment banking is a great way to start one's career. I learned a ton at a very early age. Um, You know, I found myself in boardrooms of Fortune 500 companies, sitting in the back, uh, and and just trying to be a sponge and learn everything I could. But it's it's a a really great way to start a career. But it wasn't for me professionally. I just you know I found it very. Uh, very transactional, obviously. I mean, it's what you're doing is you're advising on a transaction, and I wanted to be a little bit more operationally involved, like more involved in the actual uh, operations of the business, and and being on the front lines where you roll up your sleeves and and really try to build and create something. So, two years in investment banking in New York at Goldman Sachs, but um, you know that wasn't uh, that wasn't what I was meant to do.
0: Well, that is a heck of a business uh, graduate program to be a Goldman Sachs for two years in M&A. Yeah. So, okay. So you have a huge background in M&A. Uh, at some point, you're, you were in your twenties at this point, or at some point you started a company, Hotwire, that was your first, as my understanding, your first huge yeah. exit type company. Tell me, walk me through like how that started and how you went from Wall Street, M&A, sure. to hey, I'm going to get involved with tech.
1: Sure. So I I left Wall Street. I, I was there for ninety seven to ninety nine, and moved to San Francisco to work at a private equity firm called TPG Capital.
0: Okay, and uh,
1: TPG is one of the biggest private equity firms out there. And by the time I got there in the late 90s, they controlled three U.S. airlines. They had bought Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy. They bought America West out of bankruptcy. And then they had sold uh, part of the Continental stake to Northwest. And so they, they controlled a lot of Northwest Airlines. And so the idea that we had at TPG was to create an airline consortium, uh, basically an airline-owned startup in the discount travel space. Okay. And I got staffed on this as a 23-year-old first-year wow. associate at this private equity firm and was told, hey, you know, write a business plan and figure out what the strategy for this company should be and and help get it off the ground. And so I helped start this company, Hotwire, which ultimately I left TPG to help run. Uh, so another TPG person and I left and he became the CEO and I was the COO and CFO for a while and sort of everything else as a co-founder of an early stage yeah. company. And so um, that was an amazing experience from 99 to... Yeah. Oh, one, things were going great and and the company was crushing it. And then September 11th happened and September 11th really, um, you know, caused our company to hit a wall, uh, partly because nobody traveled for about six months afterwards, partly because at Hotwire, we'd actually sold tickets to the hijackers, not the September 11th uh, tickets, but the September 10th tickets of 2001, the Bangor, Maine to Boston Logan flight. And, you know, I never I didn't start talking about that publicly until just a year or two ago when it had been more than 20 years and the company didn't know it broadly at the time. But for the executive team that did know it um, and was knew it because the FBI told us about it on the afternoon of September 11th, it was it was rough. I mean, it gave us this terrible, palpable sense of connection to the tragedy of 9-11. the company, though, survived and through uh, a lot of belt tightening through some, unfortunately, th- some layoffs and also through a down round, meaning we we raised more venture capital at a lower price than Got our it. prior round, we managed wow. to help the company survive. And by two years after 9-11, so 2003, we sold Hotwire to Expedia for about 700 million, which was at the time wow. the largest all cash sale of an internet company ever. And um, so it was a, a great exit, and I'm, um, you know, very proud of of the company. And I'm also super proud that Hotwire still exists today. I mean, it's, yeah, you know, it's part of Expedia, but here we are 20 years later, and it's still a, a vibrant brand and a great product. And I still use it to book some of my travel, and you know, I'm very yeah. proud of that.
0: I mean, that's incredible. Your background speaks for itself, and it's like, okay, well, no wonder this guy's so good at what he does. I mean, just hearing from the Goldman Sachs days. To TPG to now do a business plan and start this travel company at the beginning of sort of tech travel and it's Hotwire and it's now Expedia. Okay, so now you exit and you're you're only in your early 20s. You've already accomplished yeah. so much <laughs> and forget the accomplishments and the dollar amounts because those are insane. But regardless of that, the actual intellectual capital and business and life experience. From 22 to what, 27 or 28? I mean, that's a lifetime of business experience. And now you're still a young guy and you're like, okay, what do I do now? So I guess I'm sure it was a lot more than what do I do now. But now walk us through the beginning of Zillow, which everyone in the world and my world knows and it's changed (laughs) our business uh, for better and worse. Uh, I think it's, you know, whatever the case, but I think it's better more than worse. But tell me uh, the beginning of how you got from travel tech Sure. Now, real estate. Sure. So,
1: um, Hotwire was based in San Francisco. We sold it to Expedia, which was based in Seattle. I moved up to Seattle to work at the new parent company at Expedia, uh, and it was about the same time that my girlfriend, fiance, wife at the uh, um, I forget exactly what what you know what we were at the time. What stage were in? uh, But anyway, she got into medical school in Seattle, also. So we moved from San Francisco to Seattle. That worked out well, and. Uh, and I was at Expedia for about a year before I decided to leave and start Zillow. Okay. And so I left with two other early folks who were early founders of Expedia, and they had led the acquisition of Hotwire. And so uh, we and, then, and a couple other former Expedia colleagues spent a couple months in a conference room trying to figure out what to do, trying to figure out what company to start. And we decided, and this was 2005 to 2006, we decided to start an online real estate company. And the reason was at the time, although the internet was more than ten years old, and although there were plenty of real estate websites at the time, there really were very few, maybe not, arguably none, that prioritized the consumer, that um, you know focused on the consumer first. So Realtor.com was the category leader at the time, and it was really started by the industry for the industry, and. Um, then there were brokerage sites, but most of the brokerage sites again existed to serve the needs of their of their agents or their member brokers, and so yeah. we wanted to build a consumer first site. And you know, you allude to the sort of for better or for worse. I think you know what, what you're probably getting at is sometimes Zillow's prioritization of the consumer puts it or put it at odds with the industry. uh, You know, so an obvious example is the very first product that we launched in 2006 was the Zestimate.
0: Yeah, the Zestimate.
1: um, (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure you've had lots of conversations and your listeners have had lots of conversations (laughs) with consumers about this estimate. And, you know, to be clear, I don't I don't work at Zillow anymore. I've been gone for more than three years, so I don't you know, but but uh, you know, I I still um, you know, I still I, I can still speak to this issue very you know very, yes you
0: can you very can speak well. And, a you know, lot what I
1: would it. say is, you know, look first of all, it's is we call it a zestimate, not a appraisal, right? Yeah. It's like it's meant yeah. to be a starting point. It's a swag. It is a computer model's best guess of what a home is worth. And Zillow's whole strategy and business model is to try to connect those consumers with professionals. That's how Zillow makes money is by selling yeah. leads to real estate agents. So, um, you know, I we we'd like to. Compare it with WebMD, for example. It's like you've got all this incredible information on a healthcare <laughs> website, but uh, WebMD and other sites like it make money and help consumers, help patients by connecting patients yeah. and their families to medical professionals that can help them interpret and understand all the stuff that they see on the web. And so, um oh, you
0: know, it's th- a brilliant concept, it's a brilliant idea. I mean, this was 2006. Isn't Six, it? Was yeah. that when it was? Yeah. I, I mean, mean, so, it was so people 2006. have to keep that and, in context of where real estate and tech and broadband all these things that we take for granted now even social media wasn't happening and here came Zillow with a zestmate think about now that's like the norm you know you have all these algorithms but like yeah. back then that's a how did you guys even come up with trying to do that so we we came up with it
1: by um asking ourselves we said, okay we want to build a real estate media business um, what's the question that most people ask when it comes to real estate and the answer that there most pe- the, the answer that most people think is well what's for sale and we're like well what's for sale is interesting but you know what there are plenty of sites out there that show what's for sale the real thing that people find interesting is what's your house worth yeah and uh, how's the, the, the market time, how much is your house worth yeah yeah, exactly. And the, at the time, the sites that at, tried to answer that question of what's your house worth were lead gen, kind of crappy lead gen sites that would say, Hey, come to our website to find out what your house is worth. And you'd have to enter your email address and your, your address. And then you'd get a pop-up screen that would say, like, okay, we'll we'll, you know, an agent will be in touch with you. Yes. And we're like, well, that's not great. Click. That's not what the Click consumer grade. wanted. Um, <laughs> yeah. when they said, Yeah, tell me what my house is worth. And so Uh, We kind of turned that on its head and said, Hey, let's just tell you what your house is worth up front. And then, you know, and then hopefully that'll attract a large enough audience that we can monetize in other ways. Um, And people don't remember this, Danny, but for the first two years, Zillow had no listings. You know, all we had was estimates and bed bath, square footage, property, um, you know, tax assessment, prior sale history, basically county record data. Plus his estimate for the first two years. And Zillow got up to be the third most visited real estate site with over 10 million visitors before we added a single listing to the Incredible. website. So just, yeah. just on, on that product of of home valuations is what, what really got Zillow start. it started. And then, was it
0: immediate, Spencer? Did you guys yeah. feel like an immediate market reacted? Like people are coming? It it, it was immediate. We had yeah. over
1: a million visitors on our wow. very first day. That's and, unheard of. You know, I think even fast forward over the next 15 or I guess how long has it been, 17 years, I don't think any service has had a million visitors on day one. You know, not Instagram, not TikTok, um, you know, not even chat GPT. People have been... Right. Um, remarking on how quickly chat GPT's usage has grown and it has grown incredibly quickly, but it didn't get to a million uniques on its first day. yeah, um that's, and that's of awesome, course, that's because right? of the virality and the voyeurism inherent in the Zillow product of being able to see, well, yeah. what's my house worth, what's my neighbor's house worth, what's my ex-girlfriend's house worth, what's yeah. my boss's house worth,
0: right? struck I mean, struck a nerve of what people are really interested in, whether they say it or they're not. Everyone's yeah. looking even if they're not buying or selling. So, exactly so it was it was pretty quick and and also
1: uh, you know give you a sense of the, of just how bad the product was early on uh, when we launched in 2006 we had estimates on 40 million homes which is about 40% of the country and the median error rate at the time was about 14% okay meaning that when a home sold the estimate on average Could have been would be off. off by about 14% higher okay. or lower to fast forward to today, instead of 40 million homes, Zillow now has a hundred million Zestimates. So basically, every almost home every. country. Yeah. and instead of a 14% error rate, Zestimates have a 3% error rate. Holy so cow. much, much more accurate. Now, there are still obviously inaccuracies, especially at the super high end yeah, um, or the super low end where there are fewer comps and where computer models don't, you know, it's like, it's well what is a you know 15,000 square foot house worth in in uh, you know in Brentwood it's like well it's kind of worth whatever someone's willing to pay for it that might be 20 million it might be 30 million it might be 50 million like it's very very hard for a computer model or a real estate agent yeah. to know until you test the market and sell the house um, so you
0: figured that out personally i that
1: was... <laughs> When I you have, yeah. Unfortunately <laughs> for me, every time I've bought or sold a house, uh, no matter how hard I've tried to keep, uh, <laughs> keep my name out of the public record, um, <laughs> it has generally become, uh, uh, you know, widely known. And then people like to make fun of of, yeah. of of what I paid compared with this estimate. Even even dating back to the very first house I ever bought in Seattle, I think I, I paid. Um, I bought it for I think it was uh, seven hundred and seventy thousand dollars, something like that, and. You know the the, the was it was off by like ten percent or so, and yeah, and and that was back in two thousand and six, and people made fun of yeah. that, et cetera. So anyway, live yeah, by the course. sword, die by the sword. That's that's you know, here's it is.
0: <laughs> yeah, look, it's an, a brilliant concept and an incredible tool, and it's not going to work everywhere. And being in LA, where there's so much variation of topography, views, like mm-hmm. you said, a house in Brentwood Park. Uh, It could be a teardown that's worth $10 and it's 10,000 feet. And it could be a brand new house that's 10,000 feet and it's 35, 40 million. It could be anything in between. So when you're in areas that are high end with a lot of variation, of course, our algorithm can't pinpoint. But that's good for agents because we got to show our expertise and understand the nuances. But more times than not, if it's in most areas of America or the world where things are similar and track homes and condos, it's really damn close. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can, you can play or hate, and I know as an agent, agents like to play or hate. But Zillow changed the game, and what yeah. an incredible concept! And I think, you guys just went, okay, what does everyone want to know? This they want to know how the market is and what their house is worth. Now it's norm. So yeah, um, let's let's go past that. You, you've moved on, and I, you know, look, you're an, a very accomplished entrepreneur at the highest level. I know you have a seventy-five and sunny, and you invest in is it a hundred companies now? Maybe it's yeah. more. Yeah, uh, 75
1: and Sunny is my is my family office, venture capital firm, and I'm exactly, I'm an investor in about 100 companies through it.
0: So I, rather than going through all of them, because <laughs> that would take days, and we want to focus on this real estate stuff, I, I want to jump into a, a newer company that you founded, Picasso, which is yeah. uh, extremely relevant to my market, my audience, my clients. Uh, it's fractional ownership for high-end luxury. Uh in, why don't you walk us through yeah. you know, how that started, why it started, and why fractional ownership? Versus... Sure. So I have been lucky
1: enough to own a second home, and um, it has made a massive difference in my life and in my family's life and in my friends' lives. And when I left Zillow three years ago, I started working on startup ideas with a guy named Austin Allison, who's the founder of Dot Loop, which is okay. a company that Zillow acquired. And then we worked together for four years. And Austin also has been lucky enough to be, after we bought his company, Loop, he was able to afford a second home. And, you know, we connected over this shared experience of how important second home ownership has been to our lives. And so what we're trying to do at Picasso is democratize access to second home ownership so many more people can afford a second home Makes because sense. they are so expensive.
0: Yeah. I go but to Aspen is... and it's uh, $15 million for a three-bedroom, 1,000-square-foot exactly. ski exactly.
1: house. Exactly. And so what, we, what we're trying to do is we're taking that $15 million house in Aspen and we're fractionalizing it and selling it in eighths. So on Picasso right now, for example, you can see you know a $2 million share of one-eighth of a $16 million house in Malibu or Aspen, et cetera. That's a little higher than our typical price point. Our typical price point is, um, closer to a five or six or $7 million house. And so a typical one eighth might be six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars And we're in 40 markets in four countries. Picasso is the fastest company ever to become a unicorn, meaning worth more than a billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, we've raised about 250 million of capital and, um, it's working. We just passed a billion dollars of real estate sales so far. Um, wow. I have one in Malibu and I love it. And you know, it's a perfect example where um you know I I I didn't I I didn't want to and couldn't, you know, wasn't going to buy a six million dollar house in Malibu, but instead owning one eighth, by the way, one eighth is six weeks a year, about forty-four okay. days a year, instead owning one eighth of that home is amazing. And now I have a $6 million house in Malibu for one eighth the price and you can get a mortgage on it as well. So Picasso originates mortgages. So it's a much, much better way to own a second home. Uh, Many of our Picasso owners have never owned a second home before at all. They've always dreamt of owning a second home and this is what's making it possible. And for many of them, we're supercharging their buying power. Because they'll say, okay, I've got, you know, a million dollars to spend on a second home. And then they quickly see that that doesn't get you very much in Malibu yeah. or Tahoe or Aspen yeah. or Napa Valley. But instead, they can buy a quarter of a $4 million home, for example. So we sell them in yeah. eighths, but many people buy two, three, or four eighths. Um, So that's how it works. Um, it works, you know, we, we have a lot of real estate agent partners. We pay a lot of commissions. And so a typical way that we work with real estate agents are... Um, Many agents have prospects in their database, especially if they're in second home markets like, a, you know, a, a Napa Valley or an Aspen, and um, you know those tire kickers never transact. You know they come every year and they, they look, you know, they make yeah. you show them a couple houses and then <laughs> they never buy. And Picasso is a, a new product, a way to get those fence sitters off the fence, yeah. Because you know all of a sudden you have a great way to. Uh, to to put them in a home at a much lower price, and uh, and so we pay commissions uh, to agents that bring us buyers. We also buy houses, and we pay agents, you know, in in those transactions as well. Um, and then one college. one last thing to point out, Danny, is that we also have a a, a product a basically a sell down product. So many folks that own a second home don't fully utilize it, and also don't want to get rid of it. And so many people come to us and say, hey, I want to turn my home into a Picasso. I want to right. hang on to an eighth of it or a quarter of it. Oh, wow. And then Picasso, you sell it to a couple other folks. And then Picasso does the property management. We put owner lockers on site. So um, you, wow. know, you keep your surfboard and your skis and your family photos and your, you know, your other personal effects at the house. Um, and so it's much better than a, a second homeowner, for example, deciding to rent out their home as a short-term rental and have random people beat up their house. Instead, you know, they co-own their house with a couple other families.
0: Got it. So it's this is sort of the reverse or the anti Airbnb model. So you get yeah, more it's a it's sort of like the
1: Air's version of exactly. I, I would think of it as um, you know what what Airbnb is to short-term rentals. We're trying to be to to co-ownership and you know another another way to think about it is like airbnb didn't invent the idea of renting out your spare room or renting out your house yeah. for short periods of time what they did was they solved a couple big problems with it right they solved trust and safety and payments and scheduling and likewise picasso didn't invent the idea of co-ownership plenty of families sure. own a ski house together right. or a beach house together right I and mean, people do this all the time yeah yeah but what we've done is we've solved some of the problems with it we solved scheduling Demand aggregation. So how do you get to 100% ownership? Um, mortgage yeah. origination. I mean, if you buy a, a ski house with another family, you can't get a mortgage on it. Like uh, no bank will originate that. But you can on a Picasso. We've solved resale. Um, you know, we've solved property management. We've solved how to keep your stuff there. So a- as a result of of solving those problems, uh, you know, I think that's why the company is just growing so quickly.
0: Yeah, you've made a complicated, complex scenario simplistic and accessible. So right. let me hit and, and dig deeper on a few of these items that yeah. are popping up in my mind, I'm sure my friends and clients would be like, oh, okay, uh, rather than an $8 million ski house, I can do an eighth. It's a million. You said we can finance it. Yeah. So when you say you can get a mortgage, just like a traditional mortgage, a Standard down payment, Uh, or yeah, so
1: it's it's a little higher LTV. uh, We're usually like fifty or sixty percent LTV, um, so higher. But um, and and the but the rate is usually pretty similar to what a regular mortgage would be. Uh, And the the main difference and and kind of the reason that it works is you're only on the hook for your piece of it. Okay, right. So if uh, again, take the the one in Malibu that I own. I have no idea who I own it with. I don't, you know, the other seven folks, I don't know who they are. Could be you. Maybe you own it with me. I have no idea. Not (laughs) telling. And, you know, maybe it's not seven other folks. Maybe it's three other folks because maybe they each own, you know, two or three eighths. So I have no idea. All I know is when I want to visit the house, I open the Picasso app. And I schedule my visit. Picasso does the property management and it's totally seamless. Like, you know, when I come, I use the code Picasso gives me in the app. When I leave, I, I shut the door and, you know, I don't come back again for a couple of weeks and I have it one eighth at time and I pay my mortgage. And if I don't pay, the other seven folks are not on the hook for it. Um, You know, Picasso foreclosed. And if I were not to pay, Picasso would foreclose on me. Um, but not the other people. So that's the main, the main benefit. So you
0: are the uh, backstop. Picasso will step yes. in if somebody isn't doing what they're supposed to do. They'll take over that ownership exactly. and resell it to someone. Exactly. And the it. way resale yeah.
1: works is the other seven owners have right of first refusal at whatever price okay. I set if I'm
0: selling. That and was if going don't another the question. bid, then Picasso lists it in the MLS. Got it. Uh, All right. That was going to be my next question. If yeah. someone wants to dump it and it's you bought it for a million or like, we'll sell it for 300 any of the seven others can say, okay, we'll, exactly. we'll absorb it. Exactly. And, okay.
1: and a lot of our resales, you know, go to to one of the other owners, but sometimes That's they bad. get listed regular. A lot of folks also own not just two or three eighths of their house, but a lot of people own multiple Picassos. So, you know, it's pretty common now for somebody to, to say, um, you know, I was thinking about buying a million dollar house in in Tahoe. I figured out that doesn't get me anything. yeah, so i'll I'll use five hundred thousand to buy an eighth of a four million dollar house in Tahoe. and I'll use five hundred thousand to buy an eighth Got of it. a four million dollar house in Malibu. And now all of a sudden, I own two second houses. yeah. Both of them are much better. Four million dollar houses, yeah. much better than I could afford, and I have two instead of one. Oh my gosh, isn't this amazing? So that's a very common situation. Got it.
0: Is there any synergy within the app if you have multiple properties in terms of your weeks, or is it just separate? You own it's, it's eight. It's separate. You, what is it? You, you manage them a both year in,
1: in the app, but but um, it's you know they're 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 separate and you know different. Yeah, totally, totally different
0: separate. Homes. So okay, so if I own now in Tahoe, Park City, Aspen. Uh, You know, everybody wants to go for a week or two in spring spring break. Everyone wants to go Christmas break. How does that work? Is it just rotated? Well, so
1: we worried about this a lot. Obviously, when we came up with the idea, we're like, wow, this is a really good idea for business, but won't scheduling being a problem. Um, We've had, I think, more than 50,000 stay nights now. And as I said, you know, we've done over a billion of these. and the short answer is it's working really well. <laughs> and yeah. you know, uh you no, know, you you can't everyone can't always be there all the time, obviously. Um, but it works pretty well because we have a bunch of rules in the app that use an algorithm that equitably distribute the nights. Yeah. Um it. And you know, for example, you can only hold two of the next eight national holidays. And if you have this holiday, you can't get it the next year. And you know, you know right. like there, there are rules. Um, you figured
0: it out. The, the and, priority um, holidays versus an average. Yeah, and non-holiday. people
1: that want more control the calendar, they tend to buy two eighths, and that gives them a little more control. Um, but um, uh, you know, I think it, it's a, it's a bit like owning, um, I don't know, fractional sports tickets, for example. Like I have a you know, a friend yeah. who owns one eighth of a set Dodgers, of Clippers so yeah. season tickets or owning a quarter of a boat or an eighth yep. of a jet. It's like, no, you can't all use it at the same time. But like, you know what? You otherwise wouldn't have had that boat or plane yeah. or Clippers tickets. So you're pretty darn happy. You and figure that's it basically out. how it
0: works. Yeah, You figure <laughs> it out. And there's rules that make sure everyone doesn't feel like they're exactly getting the short end of the stick. I totally get it. Well, that's that's an incredible thing. I gotta look and see what you have for ski houses because... <laughs> we have great, yeah. I mean, we do
1: really well in Tahoe, Aspen, Park City, Vale, Jackson Hole. Those are great ski destinations for us. And then uh we do really well in Malibu and uh taking people um, out to Malibu uh, tomorrow or Thursday. I'm taking people out. So I gotta uh, this is I gotta well, you should more go, to, <laughs> go to Picasso.com P-A-C-A-S-O and check out check out our listings. And then here's another thing actually for you, and listeners to keep in mind. If you um if you find a house that you like, let's say you find a house on the MLS that's not on Picasso and, you know, basically you can bring that to us in a lot of cases and we'll turn it into a Picasso. So let's say you find, you know, you, you, you really want a house in Aspen. We don't have one that meets your needs, but you find another one that you oh, think you is awesome.
0: acquire it if, if it meets your. Yeah. If
1: you're, if you'll do a, a, usually it's a quarter, if you'll do a quarter of it. And we think we'll, you know, that we'll it'll do make well, for good. It. So we'll basically do it and, and we'll okay. fill the other three quarters. So well, that's the big, um, we call that a lead buyer program and we do that all the time. So people should keep that in mind too.
0: Yeah, I'll get all this for the show notes and I'll send this out to my whole network. That is so relevant to everyone I'm, I'm working with in my network. We're all having clients buy in all these places. Why should not yeah. we be involved? So there was, I know you have so many other companies. There was one <laughs> in particular that was re, that there's a lot of prop tech, I know, but there was yeah. one that I think it's investment, fractional investment, or what, what is it insight? What, what was Align? Yeah, so Align, I think the one
1: that you're probably referring to is called Arrived Home. Oh, arrived. And arrived A-R-R-I-V-E-D is a Seattle-based startup. It's it's probably one, it's you know one of the more successful companies in my portfolio. And by the way, if you, you can go to 75n and see. All the companies I'm an investor in, but 75 um, and
0: study. That's arrived.
1: True. Um, what arrived is doing is it is trying to democratize access to real estate investing in single family.
0: In single uh, family. Okay. Yeah. That's so another...
1: um, so for example, you go to the arrived website and it'll there'll be a picture of this is a home that's in Nashville, Tennessee, and it rents out for eighteen hundred dollars a month. And you know, you can buy as little of I think it's 10 or 25 bucks of it on your credit card and so they've okay. got tens of thousands of people that have bought tens of millions of dollars of real estate through them and that so they're fractionally
0: the owning all of these
1: single family homes either Just micro
0: for... investing fractional investing. exactly it's specifically yeah. with residential investing yes residential and it's either
1: regular rentals or they also have a vacation rental product where uh you can buy a piece of a uh, you know of a home that they airbnb so they do all the property management you never get involved but, it, you know, if you want like a 5 to 10% rate of return and you want to have a little bit of your portfolio in real estate, it's pretty hard. Like, what do you do? Like, you, you know, most people are not going to go buy a home and rent it out. That's a lot of work. Yeah. Um, and it's probably too high a ticket price for most people. They want to yeah. put... Five hundred or five thousand or twenty-five thousand dollars towards real estate, not you know, not five hundred thousand. And so sure. it's a, it's just a
0: great, a great way to do that. And that I mean, I just need really to plug well. into seventy-five and sunny. <laughs> it's like <laughs> everything you're doing is like there's so many clients that I have. They're like, I, I want to buy an investment, but Barry of entry in LA, you're, what are you gonna buy a little fixer for three and a half million in Palms and like, right. or twenty million in Brentwood and rent it? Like this gives you so much more. Yeah accessibility. And uh, I got to spend more time on it. All right. I'm going to now pivot away from all these great companies you have. Uh, hearing all this stuff, how in the heck are you able to get to all this stuff, balance all this stuff? There probably is no balance if you're handling all this, but why don't you talk me through a little bit how you, what your day looks like, what your morning looks like, and how are you able to manage this stuff as yeah, well as so- your personal life?
1: I mean I have a lot going on uh, you know I've got three young kids and my wife's a doctor and I got yeah. you know it's it's a busy a busy life and a busy household um you know I mean like all like all people, I have a great team that helps me with these types of things. I mean, nobody can accomplish anything alone. And startup is, startups are very, that, that very much applies to startups. It also very much applies to startup investing. So um, there's a team at 75 and Sunny that helps. And then each of these companies that we're talking about have great management teams. Um, my morning routine, uh, you know, I try to work out every day. It doesn't routine. always happen. Um, <laughs> um, but uh did today. So that's good. It's a win. Um,
0: me too. With three kids, I have three, too, 12, yeah. 10, and eight. It's like chaos every morning. It's hard. It's hard. I mean, but, um, yeah, I
1: mean, I did a Peloton class this morning, and that, you know that that was good. That's um a win <laughs> and um, uh, I work from home. I don't have an office, so you know, any viewers who are watching this would we, will see this is this is my home, yeah, um and um. You know, I mean, it, not travel. Or I, I travel very little for work now. When I was running Zillow, I traveled a lot. I mean, every week I'd be gone three, four, even five days. Um, not traveling is a game changer. I, I mean, I travel for work a little bit, but but very little compared with what I right. used to. Um, that's just made me so much more efficient. And obviously working from home ha- has also made me very efficient with my time. Um, but um, I don't know. I somehow keep it all together. And having a team
0: helps. <laughs> team! delegation delegation well how what would be some tips to some you know entrepreneurs that are in startup mode you've been through it so many times and you've the progression you've been through the whole progression what would be some insights or tips obviously there's no silver bullet and each each time and each business is different but can you speak to that a little bit if there's some people that are in startup mode or thinking about startup mode sure so i mean there's no there's
1: no such thing as just someone who's great at startups in general. I mean, there's only a person who's who's feels really connected to what they're working on. So, um, like, if you asked me to start a company in a in I don't know in gaming, for example, which is just I'm just not interested in gaming. Like, I'm not not a game, passion. and yeah, and um, uh, and so I wouldn't be great at it. And so, being a great founder requires just being 24/7 living breathing sleeping the problem and caring so deeply being so con- deeply connected to that mission that that's the most important thing is solve a problem that you have or that you c- care a lot about i care a lot about second home ownership i when i read the customer testimonials um from picasso owners like it's it's pretty amazing and i really care about Helping that um, be become globally scaled. Uh, I really care about information transparency, which is what Zillow was all about, and giving people access to information so they can make smarter decisions. Like these are, you know, these are things I'm passionate about, and that's why I think why I was good at at those companies. Um, I think the second big thing I'd recommend to a founder after just finding a problem that you are passionate about solving is finding a team that can do it with you. Again, like nothing is great as accomplished alone. And that is very, very true at startups. And so you want to surround yourself with a team that has diverse skill sets. Um, you know, ideally diversity of, of all types, but at a minimum, diverse skill sets. So if you're a business person or a salesperson or a marketer, you need to find a technical co-founder somebody who's engineering Got focused it. if you're um a great software engineer a great technical architect you need to find a great salesperson to help complement your skills so that's um you know that's absolutely critical for startups
0: that's great insight build a team and figure out your strengths and weaknesses and add those pieces i mean it's like building a sports team or anything mm-hmm. exactly you're trying to find the right skill sets put them together so here's a, another question that you would probably have some great, great uh, insight and experience on. Are there obviously there's huge obstacles and challenges, but are there like typical scenarios when as you're growing a startup, scaling? What are like the most challenging parts of that? Now that you've got a startup, which is so challenging to to survive, now you're surviving. you you've survived. Maybe you're always in survival mode, but now as you start scaling it into a a big business like you did with Hotwire and Zillow and So, what are like the the typical huge challenges that will keep a founder up at night and keep your stomach just feeling terrible? The big, the hardest problem,
1: or the biggest challenge with scaling, is scaling the team. Making sure that the key people in key positions of the company are still right for their roles, because what made them right for the role when the company was five employees, ten employees, twenty employees might not make them right for the role when you're 50 100 or 200 employees and that is very difficult especially if you recruit a lot of friends early on you can find yourself in a position where you're pushing out friends from your own company which is which is difficult um and the advice i always give to people is uh to think about um the challenges ahead for each of those roles so let's say you're a series c stage 200 employee company um you know, and imagine you were hiring today for that SVP of marketing, that director of software engineering, that VP of customer, you know, customer care. Like knowing what you know about the roles today and what the company needs for the next twelve months, would you hire that person into that yeah. role today?
0: Thinking ahead.
1: Yeah, exactly. Putting because that person like, out there, the person in that role is just there because they were hired. 12, 18 months ago when they were right for the co- now if you're at a bigger, more static company, it won't change as much. I mean, in theory, what what qualified them for the job a year or two ago probably still qualifies them. But in these early stage companies, everything's changing so quickly that sometimes the people need to change. Now, sometimes plenty of people can scale through different, uh different stages, but um, you know, that's that's an important thing for for founders and startup executives to keep an eye on. I guess it the second biggest piece of advice I would give would be don't run out of money. Um, you know always <laughs> be important. fundraising like the always be paying attention to your burn, which is how much monthly much. cash are you losing um and your runway, which is just I'll, hey look at yeah. the last 3 months of burn and divide your cash by that and that'll tell you what your monthly runway is um or sorry what, what your month total months left of runway are. Um and just know that that will sneak up on you like a lot of the companies that have failed that I've been an investor in or advised or involved in they they've just lulled themselves into a false sense of security they're like oh I've got a year of runway left that'll be fine it's like well not really because you can't really raise any money in the last three months because nobody will give money like right at the very end a good fundraising could take 3 to 6 months so really like if you think you have a year, a year of year. runway you kind of only have 3 months left um you, know, wow. <laughs> you got to get going
0: wow. and it's startups are sort of so always worrying. in
1: that mode so so always be be aware of your funds
0: what is the optimal obviously in reality what's an optimal like for a startup not yeah. ideally but like how much runway burn so, do you need it's a great, it's a great question mode? so in normal times the answer to that
1: would be 18 months. Okay. In this environment, you know, we're recording this in uh, in, in February 2023, and it is a terrible, terrible, terrible fundraising environment. I think yes. we, the the latest data says that this last month was the lowest amount of venture. Sorry, the last quarter was the lowest amount of venture capital invested in the last nine years. So I'm advising companies today to have. Between twenty four to thirty, ideally up to thirty six months of, wow. of runway left, wow. because you should assume that the next year will be pretty Nothing. difficult to raise capital. So, yeah, um, so it's it's the answer is a lot longer than in in good times.
0: That's so that's just incredible critical info. All right, so now let's take it uh, further. How does a founder and his team know that it's time to exit? Is it because someone showed up with a pile of money, or is it hey? we're strategically thinking for this business, you know, economic stuff is happening, trends are ha- like how do you mm. think about that and again it's probably different with every niche and every vertical and the economy and inter- everything plays a factor but, but yeah. speak to that for someone who well, built so, so a big i think business. it's
1: i think it's important for founders to be and their boards to be realistic about potential exits and um sometimes that requires a different chip in the founder's mind, I mean, being a founder is tricky because they have to constantly oscillate between the you know this incredible optimism required to be the founder of a company. Sure. I mean, who, no, nobody starts a company because they think it's going to end up being worth a million dollars. They start a company because it's going to be worth like a hundred billion dollars. Of course, yeah. this is going to be worth more than Google. Yeah. Like this company is going to be massive. But you, at the same time, need the realism to know that sometimes that's not the most likely scenario. Yeah, and so and and being a great founder is knowing when to turn up one and down the other and kind of you know they're constantly calibrating exactly exactly um and so um anyway i think it's i encourage founders that of companies i'm involved in to always be getting to know strategic acquirers and for example at zillow we bought 17 companies in the time that i was ceo including dot loop that as i mentioned the founder of you know the founder of dot loop would go on to start picasso with me um almost all actually probably all of those 17 companies were a a courtship of at least one year and in some cases 5 years wow so if you're a startup thinking about you know oh maybe someday I'll sell to a zillow a google and amazon or whatever you should start building those relationships now because it's going to take a couple of years of getting to know each other before that big company acts. The chances of you calling them and saying, "Hey, we're for sale. Do you want to buy?" and and getting a yes is like almost zero. Yeah. That- um. So it's uh, you got to build the a long term relationship. And so the way to do that is you you know you start sort of under the guise of partnership, like, "Hey, big company, I'm an innovative, interesting startup. Like, can we?" Can I connect with your corp dev people and just get you on, get us on your radar screen, and we can talk about possible partnerships and yep. blah blah blah? And then over a couple year period, that could maybe develop. evolves into an acquisition.
0: Wow, that's a long, a long way to go. A long yeah. way to go. That's unbelievable to think that all the the different companies doing that. You start with an intro call, and it could be years before it actually. Ever turns into anything. Yeah. Well, this is this has been a masterclass in entrepreneurship and business. But let let's switch to some fun personal stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, any books you'd recommend? Doesn't have to be business. Any books that you feel like, hey, this would be great for people to inspire them, or just great read. Anything? Come yeah. To sure.
1: Mind? Um, I, I I just finished the case for Mars, which I thought was a super interesting book about why we should uh, explore and then colonize Mars. Okay. Uh, and I got interested in that because of a show called for all mankind, uh, on, on Apple, which was just a really interesting show about, yep. about the space program. Um, uh, Love it. Um, what else? Uh, I just started a book called how not to die about longevity health. And, and health. Um, but, um, you know, I'm not very far into that, but, um, those are, uh, I very know, interesting. are two books that I'm, That are on my shelf and how about some movies you
0: love doesn't have to be anything to do with business well i'll
1: do i'll do better than that danny so one of the other companies that i started is a company called q Q q-u-e-u-e yeah which is an iphone app and soon an android app that lets you track what you're watching and figure out what to watch it's like a social tv guide i love it so i'm the founder uh, of and chair board chair of q and so if you if you download Q, you can follow me and you can see everything that I'm watching and that I have watched and that I and that I liked. So, you know, to answer your question, if you you know if you opened up, I'm right going, now, you'd see that uh, last night we watched um, Hunger Games Part Two. So Hawking oh. Jay uh, with my kids, my kids and are watching it, too. They're reading I gave it. That and a thumbs up. I watched Blackbird, uh, which I gave a thumbs up. I watched The Menu, which I I, I loved. Uh I just watched We Own This City, so uh which I also liked a lot. So anyway, so on Q you can actually see exactly what I'm watching. I'm and downloading I'm, it and doing I'm it. At Spencer uh on Q. So Are you my...
0: say it. it's Q-U-E-I-E? Uh, Q-U-E-U-E. U-E. Um, yeah,
1: Q U E I E? Uh Q U E U E. U E. Yeah. All I'm going like to like a, a, a Q like, All right. a, like a like a list or a line. And got so it.
0: it's a it's a social TV guide. It's pretty, I got a, pretty it.
1: amazing app. There, there it's yeah, Q what's to watch. Fantastic. Um so check it out um, what's I mean, on
0: the playlist if i'm listening to some music uh that you're listening to is that on there too what kind uh, of music no, do you uh,
1: it's not i don't i haven't created a social app i've got, <laughs> I've got social apps for lots of stuff but <laughs> what musics am i listening music am i listening to so let's see macklemore lumineers um mumford and sons calvin oh, harris uh, there you go david getta Avicii, uh pink um uh pitbull uh Katie so one Republic, Ellie Goulding, um, so very a lot of...
0: broad selection. Very yeah. impressive. You're a Renaissance man in many ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, U two and the Rolling Stones are probably the the my most common, um, but but it goes from like U two to Flow Rida, so it's pretty yeah. diverse.
0: Well, yeah, I have <laughs> my kids playing gangster rap in the car twenty four seven. It's crazy. Uh <laughs> well, anything else you want to add before we go? It's been awesome. I appreciate you taking the time and good to see you. If there's anything you want to add, any words of uh, thanks for or... you know,
1: thanks for all the great questions and and uh you know I I you know what I think what real estate agents do is super important as, as I've said my mom was a real estate agent and um uh you know I've I've bought and sold a bunch of houses and always used an agent and uh, thanks for doing what you do. and Appreciate it. Uh, you know, thanks for checking out Picasso and Q and all the other things that we've talked about.
0: <laughs> yeah, we'll put it all in the show notes. I'll see you in Brentwood Park or bumping awesome. around town. Great to see all you, man. Right. Right. Thanks, thanks, Danny. Good time. talk with you. And today,